0: Good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age podcast. Uh, today, I'm talking to Stephen and Seth uh, once again. How are you guys doing? Really hey. good. How are you? Uh, yeah. So uh, we uh, we talked about last week, so we decided on last this week's topic last week. And so, Seth, uh, if you don't if the listeners don't know uh, is uh, currently in the very final stages of his book project uh, and it, so Seth correct me if I've gotten any of the details wrong so it's been accepted by Routledge and you are now on kind of the last stage of revision uh, or additional kind of material you're adding is that right?
1: That is correct they sent it out to an outside reviewer who uh, I have to say I, I deeply appreciate he or she made comments in the text that made it seem like they either know me personally or have read a lot of what I've Ooh. written. Um, that they they, they they talk they they talk almost to me like they talk to me in like an almost intimate fashion. Ooh. So there's a the way he's like, "Seth, I just wish that you would in this chapter that you just done this." <laughs> and I kind <laughs> of I kind of love it. Like it feels kind it feels quite um it feels quite caring. You know?
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For, for people that aren't as familiar with academic publishing or publishing in general. So one of the things that happens with an academic book, uh, certainly with articles too, is, uh, they are more rigorously vetted, uh, by peers and in, in what's called a blind, uh, blind peer review process. Mm. So Seth doesn't get to know whose work, uh, who's, who's weighing in on his work. That's and so. ideally, the person reviewing it also doesn't get to know that it's Ceph's work, so that, you know that process sometimes falls apart. But, but uh, this is the this is the goal, mm-hmm. and so it it means that, and it really is. It's one of the you know I've I've uh, mixed feelings about aspects of academia, but I really do feel that the diligent application of peer review is actually just a wonderful thing because people take that job seriously. I agree. In my experience. And so like you were just describing, I mean, so someone who does not know who you are, uh, and, and whom you do do most likely do not know. Or well, maybe, it seems, you know, it seems
1: like they're familiar with my academic output. Or I, so
0: that, I... so yeah, this is one of the things yeah. that like, you know, if you have a voice, if you have an area of research, that's particular, of course that's going to happen. Yeah. But, um, but someone has given you their care and time yeah. and attention. Yeah. Uh, and you know for for very little accolades, no money mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. These peer review peer review does not get paid right. right? This is just part of your obligation as a professional. so I don't know I, I just thought that was kind of one of the the best things about uh, about peer review
1: yeah mm-hmm. and 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 i'm and I'm glad you brought that up because it wouldn't have occurred to me to talk about that at all. Uh, it's really kind of a a look-see into the the sort of mechanisms of the machine, right? Like, this is one of the ways in which we sort of keep each other honest, and and I think Mm -hmm. it is worth talking about. With that, if I may, I'd like to introduce the topic today. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so I started off uh, uh, sending out the question to uh, you and Stephen, Mm-hmm. what does it mean to say that museums are not neutral spaces? And I would actually rather hear from both of you what that phrase means to you, being a neutral space, especially when it comes to civic organizations like museums. And when and when I say museums, I mean all kinds of museums. I don't necessarily mean art museums, though those are my focus. I'd like to know what it... What it what that phrase means to you, or how it's resonated recently. Um, given there's been a, quite, a, I think there's been quite a bit of talk in popular culture about museums in the last couple of years. And then I'd like to weigh in on, kind of give you in a in very very broad strokes what I understand the sort of dominant discourses about museums visiting are or what they yeah yeah give you a sense of of who the sort of big players in the field are
0: Mm -hmm. so so steven before you and i take it can i kick something back to oh please do please do okay Mm so so who can you locate for us and for listeners who says that museums and I, i i said that with a little bit too much force i don't mean that in that way who is making the argument that museums are not neutral spaces and what does that argument look like
1: Okay. Because uh,
0: hmm. I think for a lot of people, that may not be a give me.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Good question. So there are lots of people who I am not, well, I live, I live adjacent to them in terms of our intellectual um, concerns. As a writer for hyperallergic, I am a. I get connected with them, associated with people who are are contributors to the magazine, uh, who are really concerned about decolonizing museums. So there's Mm -hmm. an entire community that sort of comes together around the idea that museums are in some ways colonialist enterprises, Mm -hmm. i.e. they are means by which a dominant, uh, and that is usually... Broken down in three, you know, the three classic ways: uh, race, class, and gender. Right. So, white, Mm -hmm. heteronormative, or some some people like to say cis-hetero-patriarchal, male, uh, middle class. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That those that segment of of society uses, so the argument goes, uses museums among other cultural organizations as ways, as conduits by which to transmit their dominance by way of belief system and values Mm -hmm. of the rest of us. So the argument is, Museums look at the kinds of stories they tell, they tend to center whiteness, they tend to to center male and bourgeois privilege. This is a kind of colonialist project.
0: Mm -hmm. Can I ask you a question? So, uh, and I don't want to, I definitely don't want to derail the conversation, but I do are these arguments ever more broadly historicized because museums didn't start with the west right any galdanana is like a 6th century bce museum that's right. like the daughter of one of the emperors and and sumer right. and so museum now I, I get i'm if we will just extend colonialism out to mean some sort of broader aggression by empires against other peoples you know Thumbs up, I get it. It makes perfect sense to me, but um, anyway, sorry
1: right, so good question. The quick answer is they are th- people who are concerned about decolonizing the museum and seeing museums as resolutely uh, resolutely what's the word for not neutral, not neutral spaces That's just biased spaces sure
0: mm-hmm. right, right.
1: are not so concerned. Yes, the arguments do get historicized, and in fact, I, pr- I plan to get into that, but mm-hmm but they're not so concerned with the museums that aren't Western institutions. The point is, the Western institutions that impinge on their lives and the ways that they live them mm-hmm. are the ones that they are concerned with so they mm-hmm. would say "Allah, okay. fred wilson look at this history that we mm-hmm. we find ourselves embedded in but look at where this the the here's a fancy word subaltern we look at the characters who get ignored look at the ones on the margins of history those are the ones who actually tell you where
0: the power structure lies great okay thanks for that mm-hmm so you had asked Stephen and I a question? Yes, yes. So what, does, what does
1: that mean to you when you hear someone say museums are not neutral spaces?
0: I'm, I'm going to defer to Stephen, <laughs> so, since I've, I've, had, I've already jumped in a bunch. So <laughs>
2: um, so when you, when you asked the question, I had just um, responded to a friend of mine's post. Her name is Nagara Kodumu, mm-hmm. and she's the manager of public programs at the Fry Museum in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And she just recently posted this amazing post, and it is "Art, Antiquities, and African Rooted Spiritual Traditions, Part One." And what she was mm-hmm. doing was she she crowdsourced Facebook to kind of to ask people what she should write about. You know, mm-hmm. she's a curator, she's a writer, essayist, and she's very unengaged. And so, what she decided to do was her th- they wanted her thoughts on art that depicts certain parts. Um, of African traditional and African-rooted religions Mm. and those materials and what they mean. Mm. And they said, she wants to be very specific. Um, How should one think about the way in which these articles end up in museums? First, how do they end up there? And then to sort of think about the the possible misuse or misnaming of what those artifacts are. Right. And so what tripped me out was that why she? Why I read the piece, I couldn't help but think of the Hidden Todd Venus, Sarah Bartman, and that her, um, that the museum, what is it, uh, the Museum of Man in Paris, um, gave her the rest of her body back that had been um, cut up when she w- was dead to South Africa, mm. and so they were returned in two thousand two, and she was buried on the Eastern Cape on the South African's National Women's Day, and I was wondering how Sarah would have used her body had she not been enslaved or been buried whole. Right. Mm. So I'm thinking about not just artifacts and, and museums. I'm also I'm thinking broadly about items themselves, things themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I do think there are spaces to be contested and the most and like and I think that it's a great place to contest how things got to where they are, but and, and how they could be framed. I'm really concerned about framing and language. This means this, no, it may not mean this, and I think that the best museums that I've been to are very careful about how they language and carry things I mean, and how mm-hmm. they um present things so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's um I do think that there are places to contest, and I do think they're empirical monuments at times as well, sometimes unconsciously so, and we are just um whole heart wholesale supposed to accept them as these things, and I'm like, well, it depends on who is looking, you know. Mm. Um, mm. so that's kind of where I'm at with this.
1: Mm. So you're saying if I, if I can kind of summarize your position or, or maybe I'm, I'm kind of repackaging it so, so I can understand. You're mm-hmm. saying that in terms of knowledge, epistemologically, museums are not neutral in that they are telling a particular kind of story all the time, but that's not the only story to be told. Absolutely. Okay. That's a well. Yes. Okay. That's okay. why you're got the it.
2: academic. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm the DJ. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> but absolutely, no. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll try and find another opportunity for you to school me on Prince this week. <laughs> <laughs> <Stephen>. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I had a slightly different response until Steven started with his and it got me thinking about something else, mm-hmm. which is you know, I my uh, experience first time I went to the British Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that giant uh, rotunda mm-hmm. in the center of mm-hmm. it. Um, and Bacon, actually Francis Bacon, uh, has an essay uh, about the way knowledge should be categorized. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And uh, and it models uh, that rotunda in the British Museum. Hmm. Wow. And okay. you know, I th- you know when you walk into the British Museum, like. It's probably one of the most uh potent symbols of empire that I have ever seen, mm-hmm. so just i, I mean it, you are you are seeing the power of british colonialism yes mm-hmm. like manifest and right how. Mm-hmm. and and the way that it rearranges other people's meanings, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. the way that the way the way that you can place other people's uh, systems of knowledge and reconstitute them into a new system of knowledge that is either wiggish, you know, or if you're sort of believe in progress and you know, kind of like the steady march to. You know the the stiff upper lip and you know sort of you know, British forms of governance around the world, mm. and 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 so in that way, I am very much um, emotionally, sympathetically responsive to uh, Stephen's position and Seth's position. So my response to seeing something like the British Museum, my response to hearing Stephen. Uh, talk about you know how that body would be disposed of mm-hmm. you know outside or not be disposed I mean not disposed of right i mm-hmm. mean because that's what it was mm-hmm. um, it is it, it, i have an emotional sympathetic response to that uh, i i feel a sense of you know indignation and and mm-hmm. and and uh, and then peaked curiosity about these other systems of knowledge where my brain kicks in and where I start to push up, where, what that starts to push up against and in, in where I feel like, and this is, I'm sure Seth is going to be able to flesh this out for us. Um, in most of the criticism that I come across, it's like it stops at the shore of Western history.
1: Mm. And,
0: mm-hmm. and this, this method of reconstituting people of reconstituting cultures, of reconstituting other people's systems of knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, is not unidirectional, and it's not mm-hmm, mm-hmm. purely Western. Right. It, it, is, it is an aspect of large-scale organizations mm-hmm. of strangers, and it's been going on for thousands of years. Absolutely. And I... And I don't think that that therefore obviates our moral burden. Right. Absolutely not. I don't feel less responsible for the shit that I benefit from because of that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, how are we going to deconstruct this problem if our frame of reference is like, you know, post-12th century or, you know, you know, the, the Enlightenment or the Renaissance mm-hmm. or the problem is, is much deeper and seems endemic to a type of human organization than it does just a Western metaphysics. Yeah. So that's, I have a two, so I kind of have a bifurcated response. To yeah. mm-hmm.
1: That but that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think what you, if I get a, if again, if I may paraphrase, what I'm getting from that is that the degree to which museums are not neutral is not necessarily a function of the pernicious nature of Western culture, but rather it's a function of the tendency for large groups of human beings when they come together and they make institutions that, deter- that determine stories that explain ourselves to ourselves. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. tendency when we do that is to create these overarching tales that are meant to corral us all together politically, okay. ideologically. In terms of values and belief systems, I think yeah. that's kind of what you're saying, Travis.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that was a great summary. That's a great summary, and and also that it's super violent when you do that, right? Mm. I mean, it's just like straight up vicious mm. to all the people that don't get to sit up in their perches and in mm-hmm. kind of organize these museums. But anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But yeah, that was a great summary.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. So, just I guess to exercise some muscles with regards to people who have spent a lot of time researching this and, and writing about this within museology. There's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a few people that are touchstones, and I want to run through them quickly to just sort of back up what we've been saying. So um, the first one, and the one who's probably has the most effect on museum studies in the 20th century at least, um, and moving into the 21st, is Pierre Bourdieu, who wrote this book called The Love of Art with Hélène Darbel. This is based on, which was based on a a large-scale survey they did of five countries in Europe back in the 60s, when they Mm -hmm. were trying to find out why it is that it seemed like mostly middle-class people went to art museums. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Essentially, what they found, and I'm going to run through this relatively quickly because there's a lot to get to. Well, essentially what they found is that, in their own words, or paraphrasing them, the visit is a kind of expression, in, the, the museum visit is a kind of expression in cultural terms of an essentially economic set of relations, mm-hmm. right? What they argue is that the museum can't help but underwrite Precisely the systems of representation, right so the captions the sort of layout, the sort of way the docents behave with visitors mm-hmm. that affirm and encode the distinctions between social classes mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so they naturalize them essentially right they say mm-hmm. b- according to Bourdieu that y- y- you walk in there as a middle class person you're like, oh, I'm home, I'm home this is this is, this is my world right And you walk right. in there as someone who's working class or poor. And you feel, as, as the, uh, in the words of Bourdieu, you feel a kind of symbolic violence. You are pushed out. You, feel, you self-select as not belonging there because you recognize your values and what you, your values aren't reflected back to you. So that's and his argument. Gets...
0: And this got rolled into his into distinction, right? Like his first yes. big book, right? Yes. When where he took kind of looks at like, you know, why do a certain class of people think like things that are aesthetically quote unquote ugly are actually more interesting? And this is the Duchamp and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Is, so that just is, to make sure I'm following you. That's
1: yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. right. So he 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 extends his. His um, research into what he calls the habitus, which is the mechanism by which we are socialized to like what we like. (laughs) Wow. Right? Wow. Right. So he goes deep into (laughs) that. So there's a couple of other models to consider. So there's one, basically economic relations, right? Then there's Tony Bennett, Australian uh, uh, museum researcher, who really is looking at the museum as a structure for systematized discipline. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. looks seriously at the, the ways that museums developed in the UK and how they were um, drawn into this reformist movement, right? But essentially, the, I, there's, a, there's a cartoon I remember in his book, Birth of the Museum, in which you have a kind of drunkard being sort of dragged into the museum and and sort of you know being enlightened by being around these of beautiful objects, right? Uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: His argument is that you can see the museum as a, in, as being a kind of civic educator where where visitors are sifted into categories of white, non white, citizen, non citizen, male, female, as a way of sort of helping them to organize themselves socially, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So he
1: says. Museum is a space of emulation for civilized conduct. So you can see how civilized people behave. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a space of representation of of principles of order, categorization, and hierarchy. So you can see that in the way the museum's laid out, right? Uh And it's a space in which to observe and regulate your own behavior, right? So because you're having private experiences in a public space, so you mm-hmm. are being regulated, right? And you allow that to happen. So that's Tony Bennett's argument. And then lastly, there's... Can I, can I ask a question? Sure.
0: For uh, About Tony Bennett? Mm-hmm. So is there a social space in which those same criteria are not operating? Mm.
1: I think... I don't know what exactly Bennett would say about this. I would imagine he would say yes, but he's not so concerned with that. Okay. I, I, I think... That for him, the sort of universal survey museum, to an extent, always operates in the way he's talking about. Right, okay. As a a, a conduit for a sort of uh, behavioral regulation. And then finally you have Carol Duncan who was super big in the 80s and 90s, uh, basically looks at museums' sort of ideological effects on social relations. Has a similar argument to Bennett, but her thing is she looks not just at the the museum and the layout, but at the entire architecture, architecture, right? So you go to a museum and you have, as Travis described when he talked about the British Museum, you have a structure that kind of reeks of empire, right? Mm -hmm, It just mm -hmm. reeks of like this is this you have inherited the summit of human potential by being here <laughs> now right um and so she's interested in like how museums offer up these sort of values and beliefs and and she comes up with this argument that basically the museum is a kind of in certain museums is a kind of scripted visit so you follow this icono- iconographic program mm-hmm. and you and in following this program like a pilgrim who followed like the program laid out in a medieval church, you kind of internalize these values and beliefs. So those are the sort of major ones. And then coming into the 21st century, you have other people like Nick Pryor who basically say, no, 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 all of that kind of goes out the window once you essentially make visitors and consumers. And now what you have
0: is a buffet table. Now you
1: just have people coming in and just kind of taking what they want.
0: Um, or running into what they want, knocking things over. right. right. I actually,
1: I was at the Queen's Museum. this is a good aside. I, I was actually at the Queen's Museum the other day. Uh-huh. Um I wrote about this big show, um, Melchins all over the place. It's called the exhibition's called All over the place. Beautiful, great, wrenching work in some cases. And I saw this kid and his and his mother. And there's a, a, a telescope piece. It was like a broken telescope and like ink on a stand. And he was like rubbing the thing. He was like touching, like trying to rub out the. And I said, "You can't touch that! Like, what are you doing?" Because I, I, the docent didn't happen to be there, and they were quite. They were quite like stunned that somebody else spoke to them. But I was, sh- I was shocked. I was like, "You don't know how to behave in a museum." See, because I've internalized the oppressor. That's right. Right.
2: Well, you, you've internalized the, the rules. Yes. Uh, what is it? Rules of engagement. That's exactly and right. Yes, exactly When I think of what those ki- what they thought, you know, my, my fantasy went immediately like, who's this guy? But also, it was pleasurable to me to touch this. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be part of this, and mm-hmm. that feels like the line that some sort of line that they're crossing to make it mm. more familiar to them.
1: Right. This family. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that's you're right. You're absolutely right. And so it's not... I mean, we, this is one of the dilemmas, too, with museum work, right? It's like, to what extent do we allow people to become intimate with the work in on their own terms?
0: So, you know, I would... Go, so this is the thing. I would just... Like, I, I have practical questions, right? I okay. mean, so, you know, it, I don't think that what regulates behavior is always... Uh, Practical consideration, I mean there's issues of manners and things like that. And mm-hmm. clearly there's an internalization of the rules, like Steven characterized it, which I think is exactly right. Mm-hmm. But if every eight-year-old is walking through the exhibit and rubbing the art, yeah. like then it might as well be a Tibetan sand mandala, cause in about six months it's gonna be gone yeah. and no one's gonna be there to see it. So true. like if, you're, if your if your sense of like the artistic production is temporary and transitory, then yeah, I'll have everyone going through jacking off all the art, I don't care, but <laughs> but it doesn't like but that's, but, but again, so this would kind of go back to, and and this is where I'm I'm very sympathetic to Bordeaux, is that, so part of the training that's being implemented is how do we conduct ourselves in these large scale spaces Mm -hmm. that demand we circumscribe our private desires. Right. And, and, and Mm. we have to circumscribe our private desires in large scale communities like this, because Mm -hmm. how else, you know, you have to have like sort of agreements and, you know, quote unquote contracts about where you can behave in certain ways. So that was when you had said Bennett's like criteria for how, what the, how the museum conditions be like, isn't that how a monster truck rally conditions the people that go to it also, or a basketball game. If I sat there in a like uptight three piece suit and was very like, sort of had a banker's demeanor while I was at a Lakers game sitting in the front row, it would be weird. Like, it would be weird. I'd stand right. out. It would. Right. I would not be comport, I would not be conducting myself in the way that is expected in that environment. I agree. So, isn't that like every public social space?
2: I think there's a difference. Are they the difference? I think is that you're there to enjoy yourself, but also be a part of it in some way. So, if you're sitting mm-hmm. sort of upright and you've got a you know a stick up your butt and you're just sitting there, what have you? You're not really enjoying it. The rules of but
0: maybe you are, maybe that's how you maybe that's what pleasure looks like for you. But then that's coming
2: into another another thing for me where if we're talking about empirical monuments versus a basketball game, those are very different spaces to me. Mm. Um, And there's different spaces because I get what you're saying about everybody must suppress and put on the back shelf their desires. But those are much looser environments to do that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. That's true. Yeah I, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah,
2: and then mm-hmm. also, I'm I'm not really being taught basketball. I guess <laughs> in a way, I guess you guess you're in a way you know, and I'm not <laughs> being taught. There's just a that's true. you know. That's and, true. And, mm. and, and you know, in the monster truck, I like I love the analogies. I do, but they really they're they're not problematic, but they just don't line
0: up. For me. Mm. So l- let me see if I can sell you on it a little bit more. So okay. I I do I do understand that sort of there feels like a fundamental difference between sort of a vivified and by vivified, I mean, just like alive, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. like a live performance of bodies or, you know, even machines like driving monster trucks and stuff like that. Okay. It, it may be slightly different. So I understand that that feels, uh, different and that it, mm-hmm. it registers, uh, on, on, let's just call it a, a on a gut level.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, but, but I would say that it's a continuum and not a binary Mm. and that, and that the kind of the delicacy and refinement that goes along with policing your body and policing your conduct is not discontinuous. It's, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's pretty far along the spectrum, right? So Mm -hmm. I definitely, I mean, I think you're right to call out that distinction, but that the same thrills and joy, like I, I can say for myself, like, bodily pleasure I have felt in museum spaces when I am alone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is not totally dissimilar to what I have felt, um, celebrating at a, at, at a sporting event. I definitely give you, I'll
2: give you, I didn't really think of it as a binary or something that was radically different, but I would definitely think I, continuum is a great word for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. we're not all the same people. We're not all getting the same thing out of the space. That's Right. Right. That is yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah socialize to like what we like. The comment you made earlier, Seth,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: could you talk a little bit more about that? I know we're nearing the end, but that it really excited me as okay. an idea. Yeah.
1: The way I, I summed it up in my paper, if I remember correctly, is I used this New Yorker cartoon to shorthand things. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, so here's, sort of, here's the essence of what Bourdieu's arguing with talking about how the habitus, that is the means by which, or the sort of details of our story, like how we are socialized. Like you mm-hmm. went to private school. You went to, you did, uh, you, were, you learned how to play the piano. You uh, went to church twice a week. You, mm-hmm. you went to cultural um, events often. You, whatever. Mm-hmm. That, those details of how you were brought up. I summarized with this New Yorker cartoon that shows I think it was a caveman like he's wearing like a, 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 a an animal skin of some sort and there's like a, a guy with a with a three-piece suit um, next to a woman who is i guess is supposed to be a cave woman too cuz she's also in a, an animal print um, skin and um, and she and I think it, it I think the cartoon the, the the tagline is something like like what kind of barbarian uses vodka uh, for martinis Kind of thing,
0: <laughs> right? So basically, in that
1: cartoon, you have this sort of expectation, right, for like middle class values. Like you would mm-hmm. know that Janis makes a proper martini, blah blah blah. Um, but you only know that if you were socialized in a particular way, right? Absolutely, like, sure,
0: absolutely. And there's a
1: and there's a whole bunch of details, right? That that sort of devolves to us, like again, mm-hmm. like. You know, what, what your zip code was, like, you know, uh, whether you went to, you know, public or private school. Or uh, well, your people were. Exactly. All well, of those were. things. Yes. Right. That's all the habitus, according to Bourdieu. and it all And that, he says, is actually what indicates the kinds of values and beliefs that you expect to have and you expect to have affirmed when you go to places like museums. Right. Okay. Okay.
0: Your aesthetics are determined by your class. There you go. Boom. Not really, but yes. <laughs> no, no, that's, but no, no, no. I. Yeah. I no, actually, you totally I'm, with, yeah. I, I'm with you, Stephen. I actually, yeah. I really like Bardoux, but I, um, I'm not. I, uh, I disagree with mm-hmm. with parts of his argument. I'm, I'm with you. I don't think it. It's fully deterministic in that. No, I mean. I think it's demonstrably not fully deterministic, mm-hmm. and and Bourdieu, I don't think would argue that it is either. In fairness, I wouldn't um, think he would either, and I don't know who he is. But <laughs> I'm just thinking he would have to. He would, if he's that smart, he would know, and he would see,
2: <laughs> and he would see demonstrated that that's not the case. You know, yeah. as a close yeah, right. reader I'm, of that, those kinds of situations. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so
1: maybe. I mean, one of the things I want to say about this whole thing about museums not being neutral spaces is maybe part of the reason why people are so invested in doing this kind of digging and this kind of research and this kind of polemic making. That's not the right word, but why people are so interested, in, I think sometimes in denouncing these spaces or de- redefining them is that they know that the museum can be transformative, right? They know mm-hmm. that it's not just oh, about yeah. the values that you grow up with. I mean, it happened to me. There's nothing in my story up until the point that I got to a museum that would indicate or should indicate that I would have the kind of life that I have now. But I walked into a museum, and I saw work by Louis Bourgeois, this mm-hmm. piece called Sleeper 2 at MoMA, and I just could not believe it. Like, it just... It in some ways... So there's this, there's this, um, there's this great, um, great couple of lines from a poem by Mark Doty. I think it's called Ararat is the poem. I'm not sure. But he says... Um, because the golden egg gleamed in my basket once, though my childhood became an immense sheet of darkening water, I was Noah, and I was his ark, and there were two of every animal inside me. Mm. And I feel like, in some ways, I walked into that museum, and I became that ark, and like I was just filled with these creatures, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, two of every single one of them. Just, I just... I, and I kept doing that. Like every time I went to the museum, I took on more and more in my head, in my heart. I I feel like the museum can do that for people.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's possibility. Yes. I mean, there's just not organized systems, ways of being taught how to behave. As you walk into something, and whatever you bring to it, really, you know, has a lot to do with how you receive it.
1: You know. Amen. Amen. You know. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so there are class loads of kids going to museums all the time, yeah, you know? yeah. all of the time. I and so, that. I mean, when you when you mentioned your nothing in your past to sort of suggested this this path in your life, I think mm-hmm. about very briefly um, someone like um, uh, Francis Bacon, the painter, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and how much, yeah, very very different, <laughs> very different, very different. But how he makes he's he caught some, he informs my visual vocabulary in a way that I can't, I can explain it, I guess, you know, through a book, but he's just, he almost caught like a part of human emotion in mm. his painting mm. and the way he tried to paint and how he captured some like really um, beautiful things, but terrifying things and scary things. But mm-hmm. how yeah. useful that is to me as a thinker and as a writer about mm. the possibilities of what you could do. In that medium, and then also in other mediums. He was also Mm -hmm. an amazing, you know, he gave great interviews, complicated, Mm -hmm. great, possibly false interviews about who he was and what he did. (laughs) (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I reread those interviews from time to time and go, no, this man is really like, you know, pushing against something really wonderful. You know, mm, yeah, I
0: love that. Yeah, that's, Bacon hit me great. pretty hard too. The first time I encountered any of his work, also. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, so okay, so we've got like a minute. Seth, can you summarize <laughs> in forty-five seconds your argument? Go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think what we, I think what where we came to, and I really don't want to have the last word, um, uh, 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 in this podcast. Um, I think where we came to essentially is understanding that museums are not neutral spaces, but that's not necessarily a function of them being sort of Western hegemonic uh, Empirical. Uh, institutions. Right, mm-hmm. right. It's not necessarily about that. And that to an extent, while we accept that they aren't, we also, we also want to preserve a sense of, and I'm just going to use this word, a sense of the magic that they can still do. The magic mm. oh, that magic yeah. that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with yeah. your socio-economic situation, um, yeah. uh, and so I, I, and that's I think I think it's precisely because of that magic that I value museums as much as I do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I, uh, yeah, the the thing that it made me think of is that I always, it, it feels like in some concrete way that museums capture time.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, because no matter what they are, uh, exhibiting, I mean, this is, this is how some human spent his or her life. Mm. Even if it's, even if it's Duchamp's toilet, right? I mean, think of the amount of man hours and, and human hours that went into the manufacturing of that. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, uh, they're meaningful to me. I, um, uh. I appreciate the critiques, but it's still a meaningful space for me.
2: Exactly. Oh yeah, and I would say, you know, I appreciate all the critiques, and it's a meaningful you know—it's a meaningful place. <laughs> <laughs> right, oh, right. I love the butt. <laughs> the butt is like, Everything before that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, completely. So, I'm
0: in agreement. Mm-hmm. Stephen and Seth, uh, thanks very much for the conversation, as always. It's Thank been a pleasure. Yeah. Seth, Seth won't be with us next week, so it'll just be Stephen and I. So, um, thanks for listening. Bye.